listening to Matt Loves Cameras. Have you ever thought about buying a premium point-and-shoot 35mm film camera? How much would you pay for one? $200? $500? $1,000? Last year, I bought not one, but two premium compact cameras that were worth more than the rest of my camera collection put together. Both were made by the same manufacturer, and unusually for premium point-and-shoots, they were both made in the 21st century. I am, of course, talking about the Fujifilm Class and the Fujifilm Class S. I've shot four rolls of film in both, including two rolls that I shot alongside each other. So how did they both fare? Did one perform better than the other? And are they worth the money? Keep listening and find out. I'm Matt Murray, and this is Matt Loves Cameras. Everything analog photography related. Matt loves cameras. Hello, how are you doing? Greetings from a very cloudy Brisbane. We have officially moved into autumn or fall, and over the last week or so, uh, thankfully, it's got a little bit cooler. We've actually had quite a lot of uh, cloud cover roll in. Um, when I say a little cooler, it's still about 28 degrees during the day, which is about 82 Fahrenheit. Um, but about a week ago, we actually had a tropical cyclone off the coast here in, near Brisbane. Uh, it was about 500 miles off the coast, 700 kilometers, uh, which is quite a long way but nevertheless it was super windy uh, and the clouds have hung around since then bringing a nice bit of rain for the garden Um, but a bit of sunshine here and there but it's been quite cloudy just a quick recap I'm Matt Murray I'm a photographer and camera enthusiast from sunny Brisbane here in Australia in many episodes of this podcast I review a different film or instant camera talking about its history, its features, what it's like to use, and I share some of the images I took with the cameras on the website mattlovescameras.com and on the Instagram at mattlovescameras. Now, this episode isn't a camera review per se. It's the battle of two premium compact cameras, the Fujifilm Class, which I will refer to as the Class Original, and the Fujifilm Class S, which I will refer to as the Class S. So let's kick off talking about these two magnificent cameras by giving a bit of a historical overview of both of them. So the original Fujifilm class was released in 2001 exclusively in Japan. In Europe and in the United States, a virtually identical camera made by Fujifilm was sold under a different name and marketed under a different brand. It was called the Roly AFM35. Roly, of course, is a, a German manufacturer, very, very well-known name in photography, and that's how the camera was marketed in different markets outside Japan. Essentially, the, the Roly AFM35 was a white-label version of the camera for sale under that Roly name in those markets. Now, if you're thinking that 2001 was a bit of a strange time for Fujifilm to bring out a brand new camera, just when digital cameras were becoming more and more affordable, just a bit of a reminder of the scene, of the photography scene in 2001. 
So 2001, according to a uh, graph, a nice document graph here I found on the internet, this is a Fujifilm um, official document, 2001 was the worldwide peak demand for color film sales. Now at that time, film still offered a much better quality uh, for photographers than digital. So as an example, Nikon's flagship camera released in 2001 was a Nikon D1X, which featured a 5.4 megapixel sensor. Um, one of the big cameras for Canon out at the time, which was the D30, had a, I think it was a 3.4 megapixel sensor. I don't think that was their flagship one, but it was, it was one of the ones that was very popular. So that's a bit of a, a snapshot of the scene. Digital is coming in more and more and more. There's a lot of compact digital cameras, very low megapixels um, but really that professional end of the market digital had not really got to the stage where film had been for a very long time in terms of quality now film sales didn't really start falling significantly until 2004 and 2005 then from 2006 to 2010 it was pretty much in free fall so that's the kind of market that uh, Fujifilm released the original class to in 2001. Film was still on top, but who knew how long for? Now, there's a really cool little document online, another one I found in my searching. It's from Fujifilm. Ugh, can't talk. And that talks about the development of the original class in 2001. So let me read you a little bit about what this says. In fact, what I'll do is I might read it all out to you. And um, I'm, I'm guessing it's been uh, converted, guessing it's been translated from Japanese. So some of it might sound a little bit strange in parts, but here we go. Okay, so this is uh, development of class, a high quality camera. And it's got underneath that heading, to, Toguji Sato. Toguji Sato, I hope I pronounced that correct. Fuji Photofilm's brand new compact camera, Class, is designed for shooting high quality pictures without any professional knowledge through easy handling. At a well affordable price, Class is equipped with a high resolution lens and a precision shutter, realizing one, an accurate color control required for reversal color films, two, high resolution enlarged prints from candid photos, and three, an appearance similar to traditional cameras representing highly solid functionalities. Well enough for reversal film shooting. I don't know what that means, but there you go. Well enough for reversal film shooting. Class is now launched as a high-end, high-specification, compact camera with program, AE, aperture priority, AE control, an auto manual focusing, AEB, and a metal housing. So there you go. There's quite a lot of uh, acronyms in that last bit. But basically what it's saying is the class was uh, auto exposure. You could control the aperture uh, and it had, you know, auto, auto and manual focusing um, in, a, in a metal housing of the camera. So what I find really interesting is not one, but two mentions of reversal film, that is slide film, uh, in that explanation or description of the development of the original class camera in 2001. Now, Fujifilm, of course, were the manufacturer in days gone by, sadly, of some classic reversal films or classic slide films. Uh, of course, there was Sensia, which was a consumer-grade uh, reversal film with faithful colour reproduction. 
There was Provia, which was more the professional uh, slide film, uh, which had sort of medium color saturation and contrast. There was Astia, which featured softer, more subdued colors, which was more kind of uh, geared towards portrait shoots and fashion. There was Velvia, which I'm sure you all heard of Velvia. Uh, Velvia was designed for very high contrast images with very high saturation, ideal for things like landscape, nature, and food. There was Fortia. Fortia was thought to be, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Fortia. Fortia was um, a variation, they think, of Velvia. And that was released in Japan for cherry blossom season, which is in spring. I think it's around May from memory, April, May. And they're the main slide films in recent times um, from Fujifilm, all of which unfortunately have uh, now been discontinued. So that is a really interesting uh, little footnote that it was uh, especially for really for slide film or revert color reversal film. So by 2004, the original class camera was discontinued and on a lot of forums, consumers were finding them hard to find secondhand, but they only had to wait for a few little years until 2007 when there was the second coming of the Fujifilm class. This time, not one new model, but two new models featuring a range of improvements. The first new model was called the Fujifilm Class S, S standing for the standard 38mm lens. The second new model was the Fujifilm Class W, W standing for wide, featuring a 28mm lens. The original cost of both cameras was 89,000 yen, which was at the time is around 800 US dollars. Now, I actually watched a video review of the Class S um, by US photographer Kirk Maston, uh, who is the guy behind Maston Labs, who does a lot of the, the Lightroom presets uh, to make digital look like film. And he did a really great little review of the Class S. And he said uh, there was only around 8,000 made. Um, I'm guessing he was just talking about the Class S maybe. Um, so there wasn't that many made. If there was only 8,000 Class S, who knows, you probably guessed there was maybe a similar number of Class W cameras. And I have no idea how many Fujifilm Class original cameras are out there. You're listening to Matt Loves Cameras. Okay, so let's compare the specifications uh, for the Class Original, the Class, and the Fujifilm Class S, uh, the two cameras which I have used. So both cameras are advanced 35mm compact cameras manufactured by Fujifilm in the 21st century. They both take 135 or 35mm format film. The focus is the same for both. So autofocus is from 0.4 of a meter, which is 40 centimeters, to infinity. And they both have a manual focus mode. The finder is pretty good on both cameras. And the field of view is 85% of what comes out on the film. They're both aperture priority cameras. So you can dial in um, your chosen aperture um, depending on the, you know, the, the situation. Uh, there's also a program button, so that lets the camera decide. So looking at the camera, there's a program button, and then it goes up 2.8, uh, f4, 
5.6, 8, 11, and 16. Both are powered by one 3 volt lithium CR2 battery. Both are almost identical in size and weight. Both cameras read DX coding on the film canisters. So if you pop a 400 um, film speed film in, the camera will automatically know to shoot at uh, 400. And the metering for both is courtesy of a CDS element with a range of 4 to 16 EV. Um, so there you go. Um, both cameras, you can also set the focusing distance manually, although it differs a little bit with each camera how you do that. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, let's talk about what is different uh, between the Fujifilm Class Original and the Fujifilm Class S. Uh, it's actually just hammering down with rain. I'm not sure if you can hear that. But there's loads of rain uh, hitting the roof here on a Sunday night. And uh, it's nice, nice cooling rain. So what's different with both cameras? So although they both have the same lens, the original class is an f2.6 lens. Uh, so when I was actually giving you those uh, aperture values just a minute ago, on the original class, the first one, sorry, is f2.6, where the first one on the class S and the class W is f2.8. So they've got the same lens, but the difference uh, is due to the different aperture design in the S and the W. And that makes that an f2.8 lens rather than an f2.6. Though I'm not sure you'd be able to tell the difference in photos between f2.6 and f2.8. But there you go. The original class, uh, brought out in 2001, is 15 grams or about half an ounce lighter. So there's not much in it. So there are some small variances with the shutter speeds for both cameras. So both the Class Original and the Class S have a bulb function. They both shoot um, up to 1 1,000th of a second at f16. It's just at that lower end of the aperture, aperture range where they, um, they sh differ slightly. So the original Class shoots between half a second and 1 290th of a second at f2.6 whereas the Class S shoots between half a second and one five hundredth of a second at f2.8. So not much difference, but there's just a tiny bit of a difference there. Now, there's a dial on the front of both cameras, uh, and they do different things. So on the original class, this is a manual focus distance setter. So of course you can use it in autofocus mode, or if you really want to, you can set the focus distance. It's measured in meters and it goes from uh, 0.4 of a meter, which is 40 centimeters, uh, to 70 centimeters, one meter, one and a half meters, two meters, three meters, five meters, seven meters, 10 meters, infinity. <laughs> so you've got quite a range of choices there on the original class. That front dial, you can choose where to focus if you don't want to use the autofocus. You can do a very similar thing with the class S. However, it is buried in the menu system. So what does the front dial do on the front of the Class S? It controls the exposure compensation on the Class S. So there's a little dial there and you can add two stops, well up to two stops of exposure, and you can take away up to two stops of exposure. And it's a really nice little dial. Uh, it goes up in half stop increments, so you can really control what uh, exposure compensation plus or minus two stops you'd like on the Class S. 
with the original class, you could set auto exposure bracketing with the camera. So you can set the camera up to take the correct exposure and then plus one stop exposure and minus one exposure, uh, which means that on a roll of 36 exposures, you get 12 pictures because it takes the same picture <laughs> three times with that setting. Now with the original class, you can set exposure compensation for individual frames as well, up to plus or minus uh, two stops. Now there is three little buttons on top of the camera. And if you press the middle one and the right one usually, that's where you can add that in. Uh, it's just not as easy to add that. Um, from a you know intuitive usability point of view, it's not as easy as the Class S. In a similar way to how with the Class S, um, choosing your you know distancing is through the menu system and not on the front dial like the original class. So there's swings and roundabouts with both cameras. Now with the Class S, it does have a couple of big advantages over the original class. So one of them is the ability to set your ISO in the camera. Now the original class, you put a DX uh, coded uh, film in the camera and it'll just match that. So you put a 400 in, it'll shoot a 400. Put 100 in, it'll shoot at ISO 100. With the Class S, you can actually dial in a different ISO to your DX code. So for example, uh, you could put in a roll of Kodak uh, Gold 400 and you could dial it down to say 200 if you wanted a bit of extra exposure uh, on the film. Um, so that's a really, really handy feature. Um, now you can actually choose ISO values from 25 to 3200 with the Fujifilm Class S. Another advantage the Class S is has, <laughs> rather, it's got a self-timer and you can either choose 2 or 10 seconds, which is pretty handy. It's also got a cable release socket on the side of the camera for doing bulb exposures, which again is very handy. And another advantage of the Class S is it uses or it has the ability to use Fujifilm's natural photo mode. So this is, uh, can be used when you put a film above ISO 800 in the camera. And so I'm going to read here from the manual. Natural photo mode generates natural photos with non-flash shooting while using an ultra-sensitive film. So what essentially it does, um, I'll read again from the manual. When using a film of ISO 800 or higher with this mode, the camera detects the brightness of the subject and matches the aperture from zero to plus two exposure compensation according to the brightness. So basically it just lifts the exposure compensation by up to two stops um, when shooting with ISO 800 films or higher and not using the flash. And this was originally developed uh, for Japanese consumers shooting in nightclubs and very low, low lights sort of situations. Uh, and so of course you may have heard of the Fujifilm Natura, which is a, a point and shoot compact camera, very, very expensive camera along with the class. And of course, I'm sure you've heard of Natura film. So Fujifilm Natura 1600 was a, a film that was recently discontinued. Um, Natura was the Japanese market name for the camera, uh, for, for the film, sorry. In the US, it was called Superior. So Superior 1600 and Natura 1600 film are the same thing. Uh, just different names for different markets again. The coding on the film is identical. 
Now, yet another area where the Class S outshines its uh, predecessor is the flash settings. So the Class S remembers your flash settings when you turn the camera off. The original Fujifilm class does not. If you change the flash to be off all the time or to a certain setting, as soon as you turn it off, turn it back on, it defaults to the original. So um, that's a little bit annoying. It doesn't remember your flash settings, but the Class S does remember your flash settings. Now, in terms of looks and build quality, um, the Class S does look a bit more premium. Does looks and feels a bit more premium than the original, a little bit more special. It also has like a really cool little small petal lens hood. So you can sort of um, fit the little lens hood into the, the lens on the front of the camera, um, which is nice. They alone fetch around a hundred US dollars on eBay. Tiny little bit of plastic, uh, crazy, crazy. Check out the show notes at mattlovescameras.com. If you're on Instagram, come say hi at Matt Loves Cameras. Or if you fancy getting in touch, drop us a line at mattlovescameras at gmail.com. So what are both cameras like to use? Well, I found them both really enjoyable. Of course, they're both incredibly light. They fit in your pocket. You can take them anywhere. You can whip them out turn them on using the dial on top of the camera and the camera springs into action, the lens pops out and you're ready to shoot. The viewfinder is nice and bright and clear. Um, you look through the viewfinder obviously and press the shutter button. There is a bit of a lag with the shutter button. It, it's not kind of immediate straight away. So this is not really the camera I don't think you'd use if you wanted to shoot fast moving action like sports or something like that. But generally for things like landscapes and portraits and still lifes, you know, it's it's absolutely fine. Um, now, when it's in program mode, of course, you don't know which aperture the camera is going to choose. It just chooses one based on the, the mid reading and off it goes. On the Class S, however, when it's in program mode, it will tell you on top of the camera um, which aperture is used, which is quite interesting. The Class S, also through the viewfinder, will have the shutter speed and it kind of blinks at you if it's going to use a slow shutter speed. So when I've been taking some portraits with this, quite uh, it's like dusk, quite late in the afternoon, it's actually kind of blinked 15, sort of one fifteenth of a second at me, just to let me know, hey, you know, this is going to be, uh, you have to be very, very still when you take this photo um, because of the, <clears throat> the shutter speed. So overall, I'm, I'm very, very happy with the job that the cameras, both cameras have done with exposure. I think the exposure is spot on with both. I'm really, really happy with that. Um, mostly I shot them with no exposure compensation, uh, except for a couple of frames on one of the rolls of the Class S. I shot with plus one stop exposure compensation by accident, um, but I can't even remember which frames they were and um, all, all, the ex all the exposures look um, spot on. They look lovely. The only issue, I guess, with the camera, um, besides that little lagging shutter, is the focus. It's probably maybe one or two frames on each roll for both cameras where the camera has missed focus. Well, actually, I, I should rephrase that. Maybe it was a human error. Maybe it was me. Uh, maybe it was my subject moving at the last minute. And then when I pressed the shutter, um, the camera thought it was taking the grasp behind the subject. 
I don't really know. There's a lot of different variables um, to explain why, you know, one or two shots per roll were, were blurry. Um, so, yeah, maybe it was me, maybe it was the camera, maybe it was a combination of both. Now, usually at this stage of the podcast, I describe the images that I took with the camera. Now, I'm still going to do it for this episode. However, it's probably not as exciting as I thought it might have been. When I thought up this whole class original versus class S kind of episode, I thought I could compare and contrast the different images from each camera, talk about the differences with the images. But you know what? They look exactly the same. I scanned them all, all four rolls. Um, I put metadata on each one so I knew which role was which and I put them in a big folder and I cannot tell the difference. Um, probably the only way I know the difference is I knew that I took the ones of the C200 role in the field of my kids and that's the only way. The images look very, very similar. So from that point of view, <laughs> this podcast is a bit of a failure, um, but it just shows you on another side um, how similar these cameras are. The Class Original, you're going to get very, very similar images as you're going to get with the Class S. The same focal length, almost the same aperture settings. Um, There's just some extra functionality in the Class S body that you may like. So let me just talk about some of the images now. I'm just going to bring them up. Okay, so I've added to the show notes for this episode uh, seven or eight images here. Um, Some of them, well, quite a few of them I took in a local field. So the first one is of my beautiful daughter. She's looking away from the camera. On the left-hand side of the image, there's like a gum tree and there's a field of grass in the background. I think I shot this at f2.8 and it's a lovely photo. It looked almost exactly the same on both cameras. Uh, the only difference was uh, the hair sort of blowing, uh, blowing in a different direction because of the wind. The next image is of my beautiful wife in the same field at a different time. <laughs> Still with the class, uh, class original camera there, but that's on Kodak Gold 200. And the, the class images turned out a bit different to the class S images. The class one turned out nice and sharp. The class S looked a bit fuzzy, uh, and I'm not sure why. Again, it could have been down to me. Maybe there was a, a different shutter speed used, uh, shooting at f2.8, you know, and the class was shooting at f2.6. Maybe the class just gave me a slightly faster shutter speed than the class S. And with my wobbly hands, uh, the class S sh- shots turned out blurry. Uh, but the one I put up there is from the class. The next image is of my beautiful, faithful companion, Marshall Dalmatian. He is looking extremely handsome in our back garden. There's some lovely sort of red um, flower things. Flowers? Yeah, flowers uh, in the, on the grass there, which uh, match his beautiful red collar. And he's looking very noble. Uh, he's a very noble, proud beast. And I really love the depth of field in that photo as well. Probably was at F4, that one. Next one down is uh, of lovely seaside location near me. I think it's Victoria Point. Yeah, Victoria Point. Uh, And there's just some uh, bit of a beach, a bit of a mangrovey kind of thing going on, and some boats and some cloudy skies. And I I like the colours of that one. That's the Fujifilm Class S with Kodak Gold 200. Next up, I've got, uh, or the last three actually, uh, shot in that same field again. I don't know what I'd do without that field that's near our house, uh, but I'm there quite often uh, taking photos. The funny thing is quite often the, the grass is quite long and the kids and my wife always wear either short skirt or shorts 
and they always moan about getting itchy legs. Uh, and, and yet every time I tell them we're going to the field to take photos, they wear the same outfits over and over again. And then I usually have to carry my kids over the long grass uh, so they don't get uh, uh, bites and rashes on their legs. Uh, but I do really like that location. Um, so the first one is of my kids laughing. Second with the Fujifilm class again on C200. It's not a very sharp image because they were mucking around, hugging each other and laughing. Uh, but I do really like that image, uh, the way it's turned out. The next one is of my daughter with um, a rope. That's on a like a, a rope swing on a tree. Uh, I think she hurt herself shortly after this image, but she was all smiles in this one. Uh, she didn't hurt herself badly, but still, she it was a couple of tears when she fell off the rope. But it's all part of being a kid, right? And the last image, again, is of my beautiful kids together, um, standing in front of a beautiful old gum tree that was taken on the Fujifilm Class S with C200. And again, uh, vast majority of the images, I cannot tell the difference between which camera took which image. In fact, um, uh, for a lot of them, when I, when I scanning the images, actually, uh, the only way that I could tell was on each camera, I took a photo of the other camera, so that way um, I knew that the, when I got the rolls back and there was a, a roll with the Fujifilm class original on, I knew the class S had taken those photos and vice versa. So that was the way that I, I worked that out. The only other thing to say about these photos is that they drove me crazy. Um, when I got these four rolls back um, from development, I scanned them at home and I kept getting the Epson purple line on the scans. And I must have spent an hour and a half scanning the same images over and over and over again. It was driving me nuts. Um, I have cleaned my scanner glass several times uh, during that, that process. Um, it keeps coming back. And, you know, I, I like scanning my photos. But when something happens like that purple line across the images, it's so infuriating. Uh, I know it's something to do with the calibration area, uh, you know, dust being on the scanner, and that's why it comes up. But, you know, Epson, come on, isn't there a better way to, to do this? I don't know. I, I don't understand scanners. But still, it's a really annoying thing. Uh, and it almost makes me want to sell my scanner and, and get it uh, scanned at the lab. So let me tell you how I got both of my Fujifilm class cameras. Well, I got both of them through eBay. Now, I bought the original class around April 2018. Uh, and I was very excited. I saw it online. I got it at a good price. Um, I think I bought it for, uh, I think it was 575 Australian dollars, which is around 400 US. So I was very happy with that. I thought I got an absolute bargain. And what I did was I actually downloaded the manual uh, thanks to the link on 35mmc. So there is an English manual for the Class S, Class W out there. And I got this manual. We actually went on a family trip down to Sydney. I was looking through the Class S and Class W manual. I had my original class with me and I wondered why the buttons weren't the same. And then, dear listeners, I realized I'd actually bought the wrong camera. I thought I'd got an absolute bargain on a Fujifilm Class S. I'd actually bought a Class Original. <laughs> so even though they're very similar, are very similar lenses, they look the same, 
they are not the same. Always do your research when you're buying a camera because you can buy the wrong one by accident. Um, I have done it a couple of times. Now, I actually went back to check the listing. There was nothing wrong with the listing. The listing was uh, perfectly um, correct. It was some idiot um, talking to you right now who got it wrong. So I felt a bit sick that I'd bought the wrong camera. Um, I actually worked out that I still got an okay deal because, um, yeah, many of the class cameras, the class originals were being sold for more than what I paid. So anyway, I went down to Sydney with the camera, took quite a lot of photos and really enjoyed using it. But I was a little bit uh, disappointed. The whole reason I wanted the Class S camera was because I wanted to try out the natural photo mode which is only available with the Class S and Class W. And I also wanted the ability to manually set my ISO. Um, so I kept looking for a Class S. And then finally, I bought a Class S. Um, and it cost me $1,000, US which is a lot of money. And I feel a little bit sick telling you how much I paid for it, to be honest. But I did really, really want it. Um, I sold quite a few other bits and bobs to finance that. But by January this year, uh, the money situation was kind of creeping up on me again. So I actually decided to sell my original class uh, shortly after I took the photos that I've used for this episode. So yeah, in January 2019, I sold my original class. Now, just to give you a flavor on the prices... Um, now the, the review that Kirk Maston, uh, did for the class S I was telling you about earlier in the show that was recorded in July, 2016. And he said at the time you could get, um, depending on the condition, you can get a class S for between 450 and 600 us dollars. Now, as I've told you, um, about, uh, mid 2018, mid to late 2018, the Class S was up to around $1,000 US dollars. Uh, if you wanted the box in very good condition, you know, with the pedal hood, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, um, you know, in a couple of years, the price had pretty much doubled. Now, I've actually had a look at some Class S's um, in the last week or so in preparation for this show. They have gone up even more. Um, now I'm seeing them for $1,400, $1,500 US dollars. So uh, there were a couple of really, really uh, mint in box ones and they, they really did look like they'd never been used. Uh, mint is a bit of a weird word on eBay. Sometimes it means mint and sometimes it doesn't mean mint. Um, but certainly the prices of the Class S seems to have really climbed. The Class W also uh, really seems to have climbed. It used to be cheaper at about 800 US dollars. Uh, it still is cheaper than the Class S, but it, it seems to be hovering around the 1,000 US dollars mark uh, for the Class W. Um, so they, these things are getting more and more expensive. And even the Class Original, uh, so I, I bought mine for 400 US dollars. I ended up selling it uh, for about the equivalent of about 600 US dollars. Um, so I made a little bit of money on it. Um, but still, uh, the price of those cameras has gone up and up as well, uh, which is kind of crazy. And there's a world that we're living in now where, you know, these, these point and shoots, um, are appreciating in value as I'm sure you've heard 
um, you know, in terms of Mu2s and contacts, T2s, T3s, Yashka T4s, all that kind of scene, they are going up in price. So should you buy a premium compact point-and-shoot camera? Is it worth the money? Well, I guess at the end of the day, that's a decision that only you can make. I really, really wanted the Fujifilm Class S so much that I paid a thousand US dollars for one because that was the going rate at the time. It's a camera that you're unlikely to find on Facebook Marketplace or in a charity store. There's not that many of them out there. And so if you do really want one, um, sometimes you just have to pay the money and get one. I really do enjoy using the camera. It's a beautiful looking camera. It's got a great quality feel to it. And I like the photos that I've taken with it so far. But I don't really feel like... I've uh, really got the best out of the camera yet, or like I understand the camera. I have got the manual, which is fantastic, thanks to 35MMC posting a link um, that someone else, uh, I think someone else had written to Fujifilm Japan years ago, and they got an English manual, which is brilliant, because originally it was all, all the manuals were in Japanese. So um, that's fantastic that I can read the manual and work out what all the settings do. Um, but I, as yet, I don't feel like I've got the best out of my Class S. Um, I don't regret buying it. I, I'm really happy that I've got one and I'm looking forward to further adventures with it. But uh, yeah, it did cost a lot of money. The Fujifilm Class Original, I actually felt really sad to let that go. Um, the images look almost the same as the Class S. So I guess if you were making a decision which one to buy, should you buy the Class Original or the Class S or W? It just really depends on whether you're going to use those extra features. Are you going to use natural photo mode? Are you going to uh, use the ability to set the ISO differently to the DX coding? Uh, that kind of thing. So if you only really want the look of the images, you know, maybe you could go for the class original and save a bit of money and buy another camera with it. Um, but for me, I really did want the class S. So that's why I went for that one. Now, on the Sunny 16 um, podcast a week or two ago, uh, they actually had um, Anil Mystery on there, and I think it's Stephen from Cosmo Photo, and they were talking about uh, point-and-shoots, compact point-and-shoots, and Anil made a really good point uh, about compact point-and-shoots, and that is that for the really, really cheap um, ones, what you can do with them, of course, is you can just sort of, you know, take them anywhere, not to not worry about them too much, not baby them, you know, uh, take them in the water, um, chuck them around, give them to your kids to take photos with, which is something you're probably unlikely to do um, with a more expensive point and shoot. You know, if you had a contacts to T2 or T3 or a Fujifilm class, are you going to give it to your kids to play around with? Are you going to take it in the water? Are you going to jump up and down and throw it around? Probably not. So that is one of the great advantages of buying a cheap point-and-shoot. You, you can sort of just muck around, have fun. The other advantage I see, though, is this, and this is a really important one in my book. When you buy a camera like the Fujifilm Class S or the Contax T3 or T4 or any premium compact point-and-shoot, there is a big degree of expectation. You've bought a, a classic point and shoot, one that's cost a lot of money probably. So you expect magic. 
you expect amazing photos. So when you get your roll of film back, if you don't get magic, if you don't get amazing photos, you might be thinking, oh, wow, what a, what a waste of money. I, I, you know, it hasn't really produced the magic for me. Now, of course, as we all know, it's really the photographer that produces the magic, um, not necessarily the camera. Or maybe it's a bit of a combination in both sometimes, as we all know. Um, but yeah, that that is the thing about premium uh, point-and-shoots versus very cheap point-and-shoots. With a very cheap point-and-shoot, there are no expectations. If you get a crappy camera for 5 bucks or $2 or for free and you go out, muck around with it to have some fun and you get the image, images back and there are some fantastic, amazing images in there, there is a real wow factor to them. Like, wow, I, I've got these amazing, cool images with a, with a $2 camera or a $10 camera. Whereas it's the other way around almost with a premium compact. You're almost expecting magic, and if you don't get it, you might feel disappointed. So what else have I been up to this week? Well, I've had a couple of little deliveries in the mail. Uh, so the first delivery, uh, well, they're both from eBay, actually, little eBay purchases I made. Now, you may have heard me before um, talk about the fact that I've got a Bronica SQA. Now, I bought this from my friend Aban, who lives in Melbourne. Uh, he sold it to me, and I wasn't sure if I wanted it or not, to be honest. Um, I thought if I ever got another medium format camera, I've got a Rolly, uh, I've got a Rolleiflex Grey T, and I thought if I ever get another medium format camera, I really want one like a you know a 645 sort of format or something like that. And of course, the Bronica SQA is square. Uh, so I bought it anyway because it, it was uh, it seemed like a good deal and it seems like a great camera. It's actually sat in a box in my office for about six to seven months and I haven't touched it. And I feel really guilty about the fact that I've got this wonderful, amazing camera there and I haven't touched it. So that's on my to-do list for the next couple of months. Uh, read the manual, get it out and play around with it. However, I did see something very interesting on eBay uh, just by chance. I saw a Bronica SQA 6x45 back. Yes, I didn't even know they did 645 backs for the Bronica SQA, but they do. Uh, I bought it, uh, I think it was $25 plus postage, so it was about $35 or something like that. So I've now got this Bronica SQA back for 645 format. So on a roll of 120 film, uh, how many images do you get in 645? Maybe 16, maybe? Because you get 12 with a normal roll of 120. So I'm guessing it might be around 16. So that's really, really cool. Um, I'm really looking forward to that, uh, playing around with that. So that's really good. The other thing that I got was a SX-70 accessories kit. Now, you may have heard me talk about this in the episode 5, which was the Polaroid SLR 680. Uh, in the Polaroid SX-70 accessories kit, there are five different accessories. So, the accessories here, I'll read them out. There is a tripod mount. Now, that's really only for the SX-70, uh, which doesn't have a tripod um, mount on it. So, you've got to put this sort of base plate on it. There's the remote shutter button. That's what I really wanted the kit for. And that can be used with the SX-70 and the SLR-680. So you can take long exposures. There's an accessory holder, a lens shade, and a close-up kit. And they are all pretty much all exclusively 
for the SX70, I believe. Um, but I'm really, really happy that I've got that now. It cost me just over a hundred Australian dollars. Um, a lot of that was postage uh, from America. And of course, as luck would have it, there was one on Gumtree <laughs> here in Brisbane about a week ago for $100. And it came with a free SX70 camera. That's right. So the <laughs> the SX70 uh, accessory kit was $100 with an SX70. Uh, I'm not sure the SX70 was working. It didn't look like it was in the best condition. Doesn't necessarily mean it didn't work. It could have fired up beautifully and worked, um, but I could not believe that. Uh, I actually asked the lady if it was still available, and by the time I messaged her, it was gone. So there you go. It wasn't meant to be anyway. So February was actually a really strange month for me. Um, I did a lot of planning for the podcast, a lot of thinking about future episodes. I'm trying to mix up the camera reviews with some other shorter episodes. Uh, So look out for them coming up very soon. Uh, And I didn't actually do that much shooting in February, uh, so much so that I didn't get any rolls of film developed for the whole month. And it wasn't until uh, this weekend that I went over to Camera House at Intrapilly, where I usually get my film developed. Very friendly crew over there. And I had three rolls of uh, film developed on Saturday. So I had a roll of Yorica Antares, uh, which is a really cool film. I really like it. Uh, and that will be episode seven of Matt Love's Cameras, a review of Yorica Antares film shot with the Mewtwo camera or the Stylus Epic. I also had a roll of film that I put in my OM new OM10. Did I tell you that I got an OM10? Uh, maybe I didn't tell you guys. So I think I put it on Instagram. Um, but about a couple of weeks ago, probably about three weeks ago, there was an ad on Facebook Marketplace for a Olympus OM10 uh, with the shutter speed shutter speed selector is that yeah uh, which is sort of an optional extra for the camera and a really cool kind of 80s olympics strap really really cool uh, it was up for sale uh, for 30 dollars, so i put a roll of film through that and it works hurrah i'm so happy that it works um i think my focusing it's a manual focus camera I think some of my focusing needs a bit of work. Um, some of them were very nice and some of them were a little bit fuzzy. Um, so I'll have to up my focusing game there. My, my eyes aren't getting any better. I'm getting older, uh, but I'll have to try and do something uh, with that. Uh, I also had my February role of film developed for the Frugal Film Project. So that's a project I'm doing with 16 other photographers. Um, if you want to find out more about that, you can head over to Sherry Christensen's website. It's rr1photography.com and you can look at 16 photographers all around the world shooting one roll of film a month throughout 2019. So I got my February roll of film back. Uh, I'm not quite as cool as the January roll, um, but I didn't really get out and about much in February, but I've scanned all them and I'm looking forward to sending them to Sherry uh, for the project. One thing I still haven't done is got my role of Kodak Ektachrome developed. Uh, now, you may be thinking at this stage, hang on, you just said you are over Intrapilly getting three rolls of film developed. Why didn't you get your Ektachrome developed at the same time? Well, Camera House at Intrapilly, where I go, uh, they don't do E6. Uh, in fact, not many labs do E6 here in Brisbane. Uh, I think there's one called Rackets 
who do um, uh, E6. So I'll have to um, pop in there and um, put that in because I really, really want to see the results. I shot the Ektachrome on my Fujifilm Class S. And as you know from this episode, uh, the class was the class cameras were developed for reversal film. So I'm fingers crossed. I'm hoping I get some really nice images and I can't wait to see them. A little reminder, I saw something on Instagram today about expired film day. So that looks really, really cool. Um, So there's an Instagram account for uh, expired film day. Uh, I'm just going to look it up on the internet as we're talking. It's actually expiredfilmday.com. So that's a day, I think it's between March the 15th and March the 17th this year. Uh, it's when you shoot expired film and it's a little project going on. You can submit your photos and put them on Instagram with certain hashtags and there's little prizes and stuff. Uh, I've got quite a bit of expired film, so I'm really uh, hoping to shoot a few rolls that weekend uh, and, and take part in that. It sounds like a lot of fun. I think that's it for this episode. So thanks so much for listening. I'm so sorry that I only put out one episode of the podcast in February. As I just said, I've been working on a lot of ideas. Hopefully, I'll get a quicker turnaround for some of my ideas, and I'll be with you at least at least every two weeks. And my review of the Yoreka Antares will be coming up very, very soon. So watch your favorite podcast players for that. Please subscribe. Please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, if you want to send me an email, it's mattlovescameras at gmail.com. Until next time... That's it for me. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Cassie.